um, from the scripture, and um, I've been gone the last couple of weeks with my family doing some different things, which I'll share about in just a second. But before I, um, before I share, I just wanted to make a couple of quick announcements that needed to be made. One is um, a matter of, you might call security for our missionaries. Uh, we send out an email newsletter um, periodically giving updates on our missionaries, um, and we did this last week. And two of our missionaries are, are, um, are in China. And uh, we are asking you, those of you who actually receive that newsletter, we want to communi- communicate with our congregation what's happening, but we need that communication to stay in your computer, not on your Facebook and not out there in public. Um, otherwise, we could compromise the security of our missionaries who are in China. So um, just a, a word of encouragement to keep that private um, in our family. Um, Today, after the second service, we have a meet-the-staff kind of light lunch. So if you're, you're here, and maybe you've been here six months a year, or you're brand new, and you'd like to get to know the pastoral staff and the people who are running children's ministry and, and our uh, Levin Center and their wives and husbands, well, we're going to be in this room to my left, your right, at 1 o'clock, and we would love for you to come and just talk with us. It's a very informal time. We'll just introduce ourselves and, and chat. You can ask questions that maybe you've had. Uh, on your mind about the church, what we believe, what we do, why we do certain things. And I just want to invite you to um, come at 1 o'clock if you'd like to meet the staff. I think that's it for the announcements. Um, my daughter is, in, is heavily involved in, in uh, cheerleading competitions. And um, her national cheerleading competition this uh, last weekend, it's the big one, was down in Vegas. So your pastor went down to Sin City and... Um, <laughs> And I really enjoyed the, the competition. My daughter did very well. Um, but I will tell you, you know, walking through the streets of, of, of Vegas, you know, it, it, it lives up to its name. Um, the opulence, the sensuality. Um, one hard part for me was that, you know, of course my daughter wants to see the strip and all the lights. And, and we're walking along and, and we're walking over these little cards that they pass out to the men um, with pictures of, of mostly naked prostitutes. And my daughter's walking across them and just realizing, man, this, this place is so dark. I found myself thinking, Lord, if you're going to judge, make it not today because I'm here. Um, <laughs> but I'll, t- I'll tell you, I felt that way. I'm walking through the Bellagio, and I'm just amazed at the opulence and the money, um, all in the name of self-indulgence. It doesn't mean if you ever visit there or, or you're a, you know, you're a bad person. It's just, wow, what a dark place. just reminded me of how important it is to, to uh, be ministers of light um, where we are. Well, I am um, jumping. That's where I was. Um, up to, uh, let me just say this. Uh, last week, I had a bit of a small operation on my forehead, and, and people, whenever they see me, they're like, oh, my gosh, what happened to your face? Um, my secretary, I won't tell you which one, uh, said to me on Tuesday, she goes, man, you look like Frankenstein. I said, thank you. That's really great. No, I just had a little spot removed, so now you know, now you don't have to ask me on, out in the foyer what happened. Well, I'm jumping back into uh, 2 Samuel, and for those of you who don't know 2 Samuel or just joining us, basically 1 and 2 Samuel are the Bible story that introduces to us the greatest of the Old Testament kings, a king by the name of David, um, who is the ancestor of Jesus Christ. And we are in chapter 5 um, this week, so... Um, I invite you to turn there. If not, it will be on the screen behind me. And I believe it has something to teach us and challenge us with this morning. But before we, I, um, I teach, I'd like to pray. Lord, you are so very good, and I am so thankful for the ways in which you work. I am, 
I'm thankful for the way in which you um, spoke to Stephanie and Rachel's heart um, to follow your lead, to go and, and discover what's happening in Rwanda, both the ugliness of it, but also the light that you're pouring out there and the people who are having hope. I just thank you for that and pray you'd continue to build within this church family and, and even broader than this church family, the, the families of Fairfield, uh, church families of Fairfield, just a passion uh, to bring the life-changing, hope-giving gospel to the nations. Um, Lord, I pray for our own city, too, that you would just grant us um, a, a, a desire as your people, people of light, um, who are supposed to live lives of self-sacrifice and of love and service and care, and to speak about the most wonderful, amazing um, picture of God that has ever been seen or, or imagined, and that is a God who is willing to come down and die on a cross to save sinful, broken people and to raise us up and to offer us a new creation life. So, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to do your work in, in this family and in our hearts. And, and if we are, we are cold, we're apathetic or complacent, Lord, I just pray that you'd bring that to light that we would come before you in, in joyful humility and brokenness and contrition and confess our sins to you and ask that your grace be once again poured anew into these uh, vessels uh, we call life. So Lord, will you enable me to teach and will you bring your word to life and will you change us and inspire us and give us hope and humble us in the name of Jesus, our, our high priest, our king and our savior, I pray. Amen. I am going to, I want to connect what I'm about to say to two things that um, Pastor John Barry said two weeks ago, because it kind of runs in the same vein or hope, um, line. One of the things that, that John said, and he was speaking for more than just himself, he, he said that he believed that God was getting ready to move. Now, he wasn't denying the fact that God always moves. He, in one sense, always moves, but what he meant was in a fresh new way, you know, life as a Christian, as an individual, as well as a, as a church family, corporate family, there are ebbs and flows in the spiritual life, times of reset, where things recede, and then there's other times of, of pouring. And, um, and what he meant was that there is a sense that God is, 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 is going to pour, with particular focus on, on our city of Fairfield, and, and we have been feeling this for a number of months, talking about it and praying about it, things that we hope to share with you and will share with you in the near future. And I believe that, and others believe that um, with him. And I don't say that for dramatic or rhetorical effect, as if to create some false sense of excitement about something that never materializes. I really, we really believe we're on the, on the edge of it. Um, but what we also see is that the enemy does a really good job of chewing into the relationships of God's people. And it's a way of hindering the work of the Spirit. Um, when brothers and sisters, fathers and sons, or, or married couples, um, or old friends, allow differences, either of opinion or offenses, to get in the way and to separate and break. Because then the, the, the church becomes a fractured entity and, and a house divided um, cannot stand. And that's one of the reasons why he encouraged us in his message, this is the second thing, to really take an inventory of our, our relationships. Um, that we're to be, of all people um, that live by the gospel, um, to be people who seek forgiveness, offer forgiveness, restoration, and reconciliation. It's, it's a way of, of, of kind of clearing the way so that, 
that God will, God's Spirit will move um, without being hindered or crunched or um, grieved by relational differences. And, and I hope you heard, I, 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 we've already seen people starting to heal and recognizing, hey, this is a lot bigger than you and me. This is about the Lord um, and seeing healing happen. Well, this morning I want to tap into to a, a, another relationship that we really have to um, tend to. Um, as John encouraged us with the horizontal relationships, um, I want to uh, direct us to consider, I pray, and, and, I, and I beg and plead with you, in an honest way, to assess your relationship vertically with Jesus, our King. Um, these are kind of ways to prepare ourselves so that the Spirit will indeed move in a greater, fresher way um, in us and, and through us. And it just so happens, and this is God's providential uh, working is that chapter five of Second Samuel hits just that that note, um, hits that topic in a way that I think by the time we get to the end, you'll see um, the need that we have to and how we're to tend to this relationship between us as a church and as individuals with our great Shepherd and King uh, Jesus Christ. So I want to bring us to. Um, that topic through chapter 5 of, of 2 Samuel. Now, um, in order for you to understand chapter 5, let me just give you a status update of what happened prior. Um, basically, the people of Israel are splintered into two. Um, you just need to see that it's in, it's, it's, it, these are bad times, tough times for the nation of Israel. These are the, the progeny of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the, the people of God. They have splintered into two parts, the nation, There are the 11 tribes in the north, they call them Israel, and one of the 12 tribes by the name of Judah in the south, over which King David has been um, crowned king. So he's just king of one single um, tribe. The north is is in shambles, divided, defeated, and under the oppressive thumb of their enemy, the Philistines. Um, They've lost territory. So, So for the vast majority of Israel, these are dark, not so good times. Um, it's good to pause and just recognize and, and remember that uh, we tend to read the Bible and, and don't really think of the people experiencing those things as actually really human people who struggle with really dark, defeating, oppressive times. Um, but to remember that God's people in almost every generation around the globe have experienced dark, difficult times. A good thing to keep in mind, especially after we experienced what we did this last week in the news and the mayhem and the needless violence and the murder and, and then the moral implosion of our country just feels like dark times. But what we find is in these dark times, God is in chapter 5 going to move. He's going to move and he's going to change things. And it's his moving that challenges me and should challenges, challenge us in a way um, that gets us to think about what really matters what really matters. So, that's it. Dark times, divided. So here we are. Chapter 5, it opens with the crowning of King David by all the tribes of Israel. We'll read it. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David. They came down from the north uh, to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd over my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. 
So all the leaders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed, king da- uh, anointed David king over Israel. That's in its entirety. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. Now, we've been following David for a number of chapters, almost 20. We're introduced to him in chapter 16 when he's a young boy, and he's anointed king. And it's not until chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, some 20 chapters later, perhaps 25, 26 years after the initial anointing, that he actually is, for the first time, crowned king over all Israel. Um, The first time that Israel is united under a king who's after God's heart. But I I think it's important to note that the, the tribes... Israel that comes down south to say, David, will you rule over us? Back in chapter 2 and 3, they were the ones who set themselves against David and even attacked him. So here they are coming to the king that they attacked in former times, asking, will you reign over us? And David graciously um, takes in those who set themselves up as his enemies, as the northern ten tribes. And they ask him on the basis, that is, the people of Israel ask David to reign over them on the basis of three things. One, he's part of the family. That's bone and flesh. They're in yellow. The second is that he had been a proven, blessed leader in the past. He had had gained victory in battles and so forth. He led Israel out and in from battle. So he's proven spiritual and military leadership. And third, and the most important reason, and this is kind of baffling, but but it, uh, it serves to make part of the point is that they knew, these tribes knew, that the Lord had promised, you shall be shepherd over my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. They knew it was the will of the Lord. They knew it was the word of the Lord. But notice, it says there that David reigned in Hebron for seven and a half years. And then after that seven and a half years, then he reigned over all Israel, which tells us that they resisted his kingship for seven and a half years. They resisted. Though they knew the will of the Lord was that David would be the shepherd king of Israel. He was to be God's prince, God's chosen anointed one. They resisted, bowing the knee and submitting themselves to his authority. And here, for the first time, they come, and after the seven and a half years of resistance, they bow in submission, and they're willing to, um, to exist and show loyalty and allegiance to his reign. And David, this is also very interesting, at that point, makes a covenant with them before the Lord. He makes a covenant with them before the Lord, and in the Hebrew language, it actually says, literally, he cut a covenant um, before the Lord. He cut a covenant. That little word cut is key in Old Testament um, theology because quite literally, the way in which they did contracts way back when um, and covenants is that they would actually cut an animal into two. And then they would separate, there's the blood and the parts of the animal into two places. And then the two people in contract or the, who are entering into this covenant together would pass through these two pieces of dead animal, bloody animal, 
And the whole symbolism of that was to say, listen, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, I will be like one of these pieces of meat. I will be ripped apart. That's a pretty serious covenant contract, wouldn't you think? I can you imagine going down to the Toyota dealer and buying a Prius and you and the dealer, you know, cut an animal and put it on two sides. It's like, whoa, if I don't follow through on my payments, this is what's going to happen to me. Prius should be a Ford, Ford dealership. But that's what he does. So just, I'm going to come back to this because I think it's important. The people submit themselves, and part of their covenant would be their loyalty and their allegiance and their willingness to follow the lead and the guidance of their king, God's king, God's anointed king, David. David's part in the covenant would, to be, would be to act and care for God's people with justice and steadfast love. The caretaker, the shepherd of the people. As I said, I'll come back to that in a moment because it's extremely important. At this point, in sum, it's just important to recognize that now Israel has been united as one underneath God's chosen anointed king. That's the first development in chapter 5. The second development of chapter 5, David goes on to establish um, what the Bible calls the city of God. Needs a capital city that's more in the center of the land of Israel. And so this is what he does. After uniting Israel, um, we read, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, Mind you, they're standing on top of their massive stronghold. Um, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Thinking David cannot come in here. They thought that it was an impregnable city. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. It's another name for Jerusalem. That is the city of David. Another name for Jerusalem. City of David, Zion, Jerusalem. Verse 8, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, his quote-unquote mockery language, uh, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So David comes to this ancient city with an amazing pedigree. And the Jebusites mock him. Basically, they're saying, we'd probably say, hey, you know what? We could gather a bunch of people from the nursing home. They could take you down. There's no way you're getting into this impregnable fortress. Only they didn't understand or didn't know, really, that they're talking to the anointed one of the Lord. The one who had the Lord, the God of hosts, with him. What they didn't realize is that the odds were immeasurably stacked against them. Had they thought back to Jericho, they might, might, might have uh, trembled a little bit, thinking, oh my goodness, what's happening? Are we going to talk to God's anointed king this way? Well, David is a man of faith, um, and I'm going to paraphrase here. He basically looks, turns around to his men and he says, hey, does anybody want to volunteer for a covert mission and climb up a water shaft and take these guys out? And that's basically what he does. First Chronicles tells us that the man who signed up for the job, who said, I'll go, mind you, is going to crawl up a water shaft, which they discovered back in the 1800s, um, is there. It's a vertical shaft. Um, the guy who volunteered for the job is none other than one of David's, would become one of David's mighty men and 
man by the name of Joab, David's nephew. I'll go. I'll climb up a shaft, you know, climbing up. And then, can you imagine yourself being one of the Jebusites? Just stand over the hole with the sword. And when he comes up, just take off his head. But he volunteers for the job and single-handedly crawls up this shaft that they use to get water uh, inside the city. And he wins the city for David. That's an amazing amount of courage for a man to say, I'll go and get up that tube and then bring the city to its knees. Now, we might be tempted to think that Joab was some kind of a a pre-incarnate Navy SEAL (laughs) or Jason Bourne or Rambo Revisited. And no doubt he was a trained man, but the way in which the, the chapter reads is the reason he went and the reason he prevailed was because the Lord was with David, the king. And you know how much courage it gives to a person to actually believe, not just say, but believe that the Lord is with us. Well, it gives you the courage to climb up a shaft and take down the enemy because he knew David was God's king and God was behind David, and so he went. If you and I, people who profess faith in the King of Kings, the blessed one of the Lord, the one over whom God the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and then gave him all the reins of of, of the universe, to actually believe he is 100% for and with us in Christ, then we do crazy stuff like that too. So that when God whispers in someone's heart, go to Rwanda, the immediate response is, yes, my king. I will go because I know you're with me. And there, as a result of that, um, the capital city of Israel becomes Jerusalem. I don't think David chose that site because it was was, uh, in the middle of Israel, so to speak, and brought the two parts together. But as you know from, or may not know from reading Genesis, uh, Jerusalem is a sacred place. All the way back in Genesis chapter 14, we, we're introduced to a very intriguing and unique king by the name of Melchizedek, which means in Hebrew, king of righteousness, who reigned over Salem, which is short for Jerusalem, the place of peace, who is, oddly enough, a priest of the Most High God. All the way back at the beginning of the Bible, this place was a sacred place of worship where a king priest um, worshipped and reigned. It's the very same vicinity where Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, the blessed one, the friend of God, where he um, took Isaac, his only son, and placed him on an altar and was willing to sacrifice him there. And then God, at the last moment, provided a substitute to take the place of his son the very same city where um, King Solomon would build an amazing temple where God's presence would dwell and where the people of Israel would worship for generations, for centuries. The very same place where um, a young Jewish carpenter by the name of Jesus would ride in on a, on a donkey and, um, and do some amazing things and then later be killed on a cross uh, to bring God's saving power to the nations. I mean, 
all of this, I mean, that's the location that God chose to accomplish his great work of salvation. And here, David, the king, is the one who establishes the city of God. He unites the people. He uh, establishes the city of God. And then I want you to just briefly see how it works itself out at the end of the story. Because now things become, the tables turn for the people of Israel. I'll read from this side so you don't have to see my back all the time. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. In other words, when it says all the Philistines, this is a massive invasion. The same kind of invasion you read about at the end of 1 Samuel that, uh, that brought the house of Saul, the first king, down. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give, I love certainly, absolute certainty, give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-Pazarim, and, and David defeated them there, and he said, the Lord, Yahweh, has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood like a tsunami. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. In verse 22, And the Philistines came up again and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching on the top of the balsam trees, then roust yourself for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. The Philistines get word that David is on the, on, the, on, the, on the throne. They're okay with him being the king of one little tribe, but all of a sudden now he's the king of the whole enchilada. You know, the whole, all 12 tribes of Israel. And they weren't going to have any part of that. And so they mustered their troops, all of their troops, um, in the valley of Raphaim, which is right in the middle of Israel, in tempting to just drive a wedge between the two parts. Both times, both attacks, David inquires of the Lord, what do you want me to do? Both times, the Lord, Yahweh, answers him, giving him directions. Both times, David submits and obeys. And both times, victory is won. Okay, pan back with me for a second here. Before chapter 5, the people of Israel were, they were divided, they were defeated, and they were oppressed. At the end of chapter 5, they are united, they are established, and they are victorious. God has moved and turned things around in a massive way in chapter 5 for them. So that the people who looked like and were Losers in chapter 4 are now in a place of victory in chapter 5. And what changed? What changed? What's the tipping point? Where's the turning point? Where's the turning point for Parkway people? For us as individuals or as a church family? To see God move in fresh, new, in transformative ways in our lives and in our community. What changed? And I think it boils down to one thing. And this is the only point of the message. 
Only one. The only thing that changed that led to this establishment and victory was the people of Israel in the north. After seven years of resisting the authority of David and God's word and God's will that he will be my shepherd and my prince, they finally bowed the knee in true submission to God's anointed king. And it changed everything. It changed everything. They bowed the knee in faith in God's instrument of salvation, namely the anointed one named David. And I believe the same holds true for you, for me, and this church. I'm not talking about bowing the knee to David, who's in the grave. As great of a man of faith he was, and as great as his heart was, because he had a heart like the Lord's, he was still a broken, fallen man, and, 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 and the stories go on to tell about that. But his life definitely points forward to the truest, most perfect, most loving, and most powerful king. Now the son of David. The anointed one of the Lord. The king that the Lord has chosen, not just to save a, a, a few uh, uh, tribes, but the nations. It's the anointed king that we've come to know is Jesus, the son of David, the son of God. And God's going to move, not when we try harder or we become more sophisticated in our organizational styles, but God moves when God's people genuinely, deeply, and sincerely bow in submission to Jesus as our high king. The very one who, like David, made a covenant with us. Only he did, did what David could not do. He didn't cut apart an animal. No, he allowed his flesh to be torn, our king, for the sake of his people. And to ground the covenant in his blood, not the blood of an animal. To show how vast and deep and eternal and binding and irrevocable his love was for his people. And that we are to live within that covenant relationship with Jesus. We are to be the ones who faithfully and willingly submit to him in faith. And he has bound himself to us to never let us go, never let anybody pluck us out of his hand. To take down the enemies of sin and death and lead us into a brand new creation, which only he could do. And what I'm saying to, to us is it really begins this movement right here, like this, you know? Um, and I know you're thinking, wow, this is the most simple lesson Dan I've ever heard. You know, the Old Testament, New Testament, prophets and Jesus kept saying to the people who went through the motions of worship, he, they kept saying, you, you confess me with your lips, but your hearts are so far from me. 
You say the right things, and you bring your offerings of worship. You sing your songs, but, but your heart's not really submitted to me. It doesn't really trust me. It really doesn't love me. So it's, it's easy to fool yourself in church and to believe you're submitted when in actuality your heart is, is chasing after all our own stuff, getting upset about the fact that our agenda didn't get pushed through rather than all right, Lord, my king, what do you want? You've offered everything to me. And so, in view of your mercy, I offer my body as a living sacrifice. Or, I don't want to put any confidence in my talents anymore, or any creative thing, but I want to glory in Christ Jesus, my king. I tell you, Parkway, that... When our hearts kneel, truly kneel before the Lord. And even if that kneeling is nothing more than saying to the Lord right now, I've blown it and my heart has been far from you and I've been going through the motions of religion and, and I, I'm more passionate about my golf game than I am about your church or your kingdom. And I just confess that and ask you, Lord, please just breathe fresh life into me. That's the vertical relationship that you and I need to be honest about. And I'm praying and I'm hoping that we, like it took the Israelites seven and a half years to come to the realization that they needed to kneel before David, that God will bring that realization to our hearts too. For those, some of you are, and, and you're imperfect and you're broken, but you want more of the Lord in your life and you are running after his, his grace. Um, then there are others, I wonder if, if maybe the Lord's saying, hey, hey, your theology's great, but you know what? You lost your first love, and that's a problem. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. That's the voice of a loving shepherd saying that to us. And, and I hope and pray and ask you, where are you at with the Lord? Where are you at with the Lord? The tipping point is for us to bow before him, the one who gave everything for us. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. And I pray on behalf of my church family and my brothers and sisters and, and um, I just pray you do a, a unique work and you would allow those who have resisted you or who have only surrendered 10% to you or 15% but the vast majority of their life is spent chasing after the things they want I just pray you give grace this morning and hope and joy to know that really the only thing that matters is, 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 is you and your kingdom work it's the only thing that will last beyond death and so Lord please do your work of rectifying not only our horizontal relationships with each other but our relationship with you just thankful that you are more compassionate than David was, that he received his enemies uh, into his arms. And Lord, I know you do too, because you're far more loving. I, you poured out your blood for us. So I just pray, please, in the name of, of your son, Jesus, do a fresh work in our church, that it may spill over, not only in Rwanda and places around the world, but right here in our own, our own home, our own city, our own neighborhood. I just pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.